0: The system just about works, but probably instead of having a transformational transport secretary once every 40 years, we probably need one once every 20 years.
1: Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest this week has served as Education Minister, as Transport Secretary, as Head of Policy for Tony Blair, and is widely seen as the father of HS2. He's also widely seen as one of the few Transport Secretaries to actually care about the brief. He is Andrew Adonis. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Great to be with you. You've been an academic, you've been a journalist, you ran Tony Blair's policy unit in Downing Street, you've led the National Infrastructure Commission. Um, You also spent five years as a government minister. Now, we'll come on and talk about some transport issues specifically shortly, but the first thing I'd love to do is just to ask you, what's it like being a government minister? What's different about that job compared to all the other things you've done?
0: Well, it's um, in some respects uh, less different than you you might think in that uh, the thread linking all of the jobs I've done is that i've been a, an ideas merchant and in some of the uh, roles that i've played i've been generating ideas in some i've been impl- seeking to implement them or turn them into concrete government uh, and policy proposals and as a minister i was i was both at the hard edge of implementing them whilst also administering the system within which they're operating and uh, but I saw a lot of continuity in all the roles I was playing, partly because I've never had, which is quite different from most ministers, I should say, I've never seen myself when I was in government as primarily an administrator. Uh, you have got to take administrative decisions, and some of those decisions are quite important. You know, When I was Transport Secretary, we had the ash cloud, which suddenly brought almost the entire transport system to a halt, and that was a kind of 20 hours a day, uh, administering and trying to literally a bit like COVID-19, um, administer and uh, deal with a crisis that was literally uh, changing as the wind changed. <laughs> That's what was going on with the ash cloud. You know, a volcano erupted, ash came over the whole of uh, Western Europe. It wasn't possible to operate planes. So at the extreme, you are a, a crisis manager who's doing it full time. However, I never saw myself as going into government just to manage, uh, Whereas many people do, partly because that is they are essentially political uh, bureaucrats. I saw myself going into government, like the other roles I played, as to bring about big fundamental change. And uh, both of the ministerial departments I went into, education and transport, I went into with a mission to bring about fundamental change, not to administer so I saw myself as managing, as implementing a revolution as well as managing the, uh, the school system and it was the same at transport. I asked uh, Gordon Brown to go to the transport department and I never forget he said to me, no one has ever asked me to go to transport before but I didn't want to go to transport though in fact I am uh, passionate about rather uh, well, like you I think Tom passionate about uh, about buses uh, planes and trains uh, which is part of the reason why I had a lot of ideas about changing and improving fundamentally the transport structure. The reason I wanted to go to the transport department wasn't in order to play trains, but to bring about a fundamental change in the whole way our transport systems operated. It was to uh, put uh, forward to devise and then to implement the plan for HS2 that I went to transport. And any in any given day when I was both Minister of State for Transport and then Secretary of State for Transport, if I wasn't able to spend at my own, as it were, instigation, if I wasn't able to spend at least half of my time in amongst having to answer parliamentary questions, do meetings, meet MPs, deal with whatever administrative crises that there were on that given day, if I couldn't do that, then I regarded that as, as a real failure. Of, um, of, uh, of of uh, my own um, time management in the job. Now, that, again, as I say, was quite unusual because most people who are ministers don't see it like that at all. They see it as, they may have one or two things, which mainly inherited from a party manifesto because very few of them generate ideas of their own. They might have one or two things they want to do, but most of the time they see themselves as managing a system, uh, and that is important. Systems have to be managed, but that wasn't what I saw my role as being. I saw my role as being... Uh, uh, driving forward, fundamental transformational change. And it was for that reason, as I say, that I went to to the transport department in the first place.
1: Your description earlier of what it's normally like being a minister immediately made me think of the thick of it, which is the closest most of us get to witnessing the inside of a government department. And probably before that, yes, minister. Uh, But in both cases, the, the fictional portrayal of the life of a minister is of constantly being buffeted by Mm. events and of, party machinery and all the rest of it that you can tell me how accurate that is but certainly you do get the sense that it must be incredibly difficult to retain focus on the things that you want to do as opposed to the things that other people want you to do how did you manage that i don't think it is difficult actually it depends uh how you
0: go about the job if you do what most ministers do which is to uh, regard yourself as a political apparatchik, and most of them absolutely love the game of politics. So the thing about in the thick of it, and indeed, to a lesser extent, because it's rather more genteel. Yes, minister, is you've got ministers who are willingly playing the role of being the uh, uh, the the day by day politico who is hyper political and is um, uh, is buffeted by by the events of the day. Uh, now, I'm, I wasn't hyper-political, I was in the House of Lords. And that was actually by choice. I chose not to become an MP because I didn't want to be in the thick of it in terms of constantly engaging in political machinations and all of that. I'm fascinated by politics. I've written books about it. I've just written a biography of Ernie and I, I sort of understand the world. But I think it's horses for courses. And, and my unique contribution to politics and the roles that I've played Uh, and in particular the role I played vis-à-vis Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, who were the leaders I worked for, was to be somebody who deliberately sought to stand back from the day-by-day nitty-gritty and um, machinations of politics and to try and generate the big ideas, programmes and policies. And I sought to take the same approach to being a minister. Now, it's harder when you're a minister because you can't literally you know, sit in your office, tell your PA not to put any calls through for the next three hours, unless it's the prime minister, because I'm busy writing a white paper. You can't do that when you're a minister. You know, if an ash cloud happens or there's an urgent question in parliament or some MP with a big particular problem wants to see you, you have to see them. However, if your starting point is that what you're there for is to generate and implement big ideas with a pretty good sense of what they are because you worked on them before you became a minister. The ideas for HS2, I've been working on the blueprint for HS2 I developed when I was head of the policy unit, so I knew exactly what it was I was seeking to do. If that's your starting point, then to a surprising degree to outsiders, you are capable of doing that as a minister. I would look at my diary each week and would literally take out about half the meetings which were the meetings put in there because they were essentially political meetings, which I didn't regard as important or urgent. And I would either simply not do them or I would pass them to, to fellow ministers, which is easy to do when you're a secretary of state because fellow ministers do what you want them to do. So I had five junior ministers and almost all of the political meetings I would give to them, which is a lot of the, uh, the yes minister and the, um, uh, the in thick of it stuff. Now, there's some stuff where the buck stops with you. Only the secretary of state can attend cabinets many cabinet meetings and you have to, you know, speak in parliamentary debates and stuff, which you simply can't avoid. But I reckon that um, if your my starting point was to be in charge of doing what I wanted to do, which was generating and implementing big reform plans rather than simply being a cog in a political machine, then I could probably spend about half my time doing that. And on average, I did spend about half my time doing it. Sometimes it was more in recess, for example, when Parliament's not sitting, when sometimes I could have whole days when um, I was completely in charge of what I did. Sometimes it was less in the middle of the ash cloud crisis. Literally, I was managing a crisis for 20 hours a day. But the key requirement in any job for what you want to achieve is what you want to achieve. And if what you want to be is, yes, Minister, you know, um, uh, what's his name? Um, Jim Hacker. Jim Hacker or, um, t- I mean you know, the fact I can't even think of his name, and I certainly can't think of the name of the guy in uh, in, in The thick of It, including, by the way, the guy who plays me, who isn't like <laughs> at all, who's the egghead. I think he looks a bit like me, but the egghead who is uh, supposed to be uh, otherworldly and doesn't really understand what's going on at all, which I, I, I like to think isn't true of me either. I'm very worldly. I just happen to be interested in bringing about change rather than administering a status quo. And that was my mission, and I'm glad to say I was able to do quite a lot of it.
1: I mean, that sounds very familiar. I had a lunch, one of these sort of private business lunches that you get with the minister periodically with six of us in a grand dining room somewhere in St. James's a few years ago. And um, I won't name the minister because that wouldn't be fair, but I was fascinated by the fact that he said, I, I, I'm in this for the politics. I love the politics. And mm-hmm. what he meant by that was the ups and the downs and who's in mm-hmm. and who's out. And that's what he talked about. And We didn't actually cover his policy brief at all during the lunch. Mm-hmm. because I'm, in not the pol- I'm not
0: interested in politics at all. I sometimes had to, man- had to manage it when I was a minister because there's quite a lot of Projects going on around you and i am in a separate life a bit of a political nerd so I, I i so i absolutely know what's going on and i'm interested but i regarded my role as a minister as in as concentrated a way as i was capable of doing as being somebody who sought to uh, promote and implement big change i have a very strong sense of the fact that most people who hold ministerial jobs leave no legacy and are entirely forgotten and though i'm not um uh i don't have a a, a, a particular ego that regards being remembered as of itself important Uh, i do think it's important that each government has people who actually craft big fundamental changes which modernize systems to bring them into accord with the needs and exigencies of the day Uh, as you'll know better than anyone thomas the transport system particularly required that because one of britain's failures modern britain's failures has been the failure to modernize its infrastructure in the way that other European and Asian countries have done in particular. And I saw it as my mission, working for two very great leaders in many ways, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, who had this fund of political power, which is a very finite resource. I saw it as very important that we use that resource to see that we did modernise the country significantly. And my role was to bring about the modernization. And I was happy to leave to other people the job of uh, seeing that we won votes by 30 votes rather than 10, that there was somebody on the Today programme, if it wasn't going to be me, and I just did it what I was told, uh, and uh, who was to do down um, the, the people who
1: were uh, plotting and conspiring. And you mentioned transport there, and it is extraordinary the way transport seems to be, this forgotten ministerial portfolio you said you're the only trans person that you know mm. has ever asked to go into transport I counted before we did this recording and mean my I'm 39 years old mm. in my lifetime there have been 23 transport secretaries mm. which means that the average mm. hasn't even reached a, a two-year mm. anniversary what why is transport so bizarrely special in inverted commerce
0: it's regarded as a very low status department and unless you can get significant investment from the treasury uh, there isn't actually much scope for doing new things because, of course, the transport systems are, are, aren't are operated by you. They're either, you said you work for the National Express, they're either operated by private operators or they're operated by state agencies, which though the Secretary of State and ministers play some role in, in appointing, and setting broad policy for you don't actually manage them there are some ministers who like to think that they can manage them which is always a big mistake you know a minister who thinks that they they can themselves start determining you know timetables for national express bus route in in birmingham are almost certainly going to come to grief and even if they succeed all they have to show for it is a bus route in birmingham but if you're going to do big transformational change then that's a matter of big infrastructure and um and planning big infrastructure can only happen, I think, once or twice a generation, because it's only once or twice a generation, really depending on being able to persuade the Prime Minister of the day more than the Chancellor, this is something big that should happen. Only once or twice in a a generation uh, will the Treasury be persuaded, for political reasons, that it should make available the kinds of funds that are necessary to do big transformational infrastructure. The transport... uh, Minister before me, who was responsible for big transformational infrastructure, was um, Ernest Marples, who built the motorway system. And that was in the late 50s and early 60s. There wasn't a a transport minister between Marples and me, who sought to drive forward fundamental transformational investment. Uh, So as I say, It was once a generation. There was Marples with the motorways. There was me with electrification and HS2, which was a fundamental modernisation of the railway system. Um, I don't know who the next one will be,
1: (laughs) but uh, we need one, I hope, in less than 30 years' time. Is there something that could be done to make transport less low status? Are we going to go on this cycle forever, do you think? I'm not sure. the answer because i'm not absolutely sure that you need a transport secretary
0: who's transformational more than once a generation not sure uh you uh, because the the mistake that we made as a country isn't that we've actually done things that aren't in accord with other developed countries if you look at other developed countries what have they got they've got high speed rail networks and reasonably modernized railway systems and and, uh, metro systems serious metro systems they've got motorways and they've got decent airport systems. And we've got all of those. Our mistake has been that in some cases we were too slow in pioneering them and we played catch up rather than pioneer. We have been pioneer in some areas. We pioneered really serious airports. I mean, Heathrow has been the best and most successful airport in Europe. Since it was started in the 1940s, we were well ahead of other European countries in the development of aviation, commercial aviation. Um, and uh, in terms of motorways, we built them at roughly the same time as, as as most other European countries. We were behind the curve in developing state-of-the-art railways, both metro systems, where, though we had been ahead of the curve, of course, in building metro systems before the First World War, the London Underground and all those Victorian railways, we didn't modernise them uh, Uh, in the way that other countries did in the in the 1970s 80s and 90s so we were about 20 years behind but having got in on the act you know the big things that are happening at the moment crossrail the transformation which we've seen in the in the london underground system over the last 30 years and hs2 has been doing roughly what is state of the art for other countries too so i think if i'm being sort of Analytical about it, it's not that we haven't done the things that other countries have done. It's just that because I think of an excess of of liberalisation and privatization under Thatcher and after, the state took too much of a back seat in the planning and implementing of new infrastructure systems for about 20 years, and we've been playing catch-up. But we have largely caught up. Largely, not completely. We have a problem of, of transport systems in the cities outside London. Um, which are still behind the curve in terms of of modern European systems. But London is state-of-the-art. There's no uh, city in in Europe that has better transport systems than London or a better transport organisation than transport for London. And uh, I think having played catch-up, we've done a reasonable job. Um, And the mayor of London... which is the, in transport terms, the most important political office holder besides the Secretary of State for Transport. That's a a post which the Blair government did. I played a large part in the creation of the post of Mayor of London. I persuaded Tony Blair to go for it. And and that was largely with, uh, in view, the fact that we needed in our capital city and our largest economic centre a political decision maker who was regional, who could drive through big transport transformation and management. So um, what's my view? The, The system just about works, but probably instead of having a transformational transport secretary once every 40 years, we probably need one once every 20 years. So Thomas, your time might come in about 10 years time.
1: Oh, thank you very much i'll make'll I'll put it in the diary now. Um, there's something interesting there. You said about the status of transport secretaries, and partly it's that they they don't have the levels of control that some other departments have. And equally, you said that when they try to control it, it often doesn't work. And certainly, that's something I've done w- w- during my time in rail there were decisions made by the Department for Transport that just seemed absolutely crazy. I mean, there were you can travel on trains in this country where the, the seat colour has literally been chosen by a mm. civil servant in Whitehall. Um, is that is that always the case, that you have this trade-off of of control against influence status? If, if, if Transport wants you know, a bigger seat at the table, a bigger share of budget, it's going to have to be that decisions are passed up and up and up and, and centralised in Whitehall.
0: The decision about whether or not you're going to go for, for transformational... Infrastructure investment is a decision which is always has to be made at the very top. And that's largely divorced, actually, from um, the day-to-day management of the transport systems. Um, in the way that you manage transport systems, the truth is that uh, th- there is no perfect model the idea that it's just british ministers who get very involved in the in the in, in the colour of seats and and the day-to-day decisions of the management of trains my god go to france i can assure you having dealt closely with french counterparts there isn't a state where the center has the capacity to and often the actual reality of being involved in in minute the minutiae decisions, and the French state, if the French Minister of Transport decides that he wants those seats to be green, they will be green tomorrow morning. I mean, this is a state. And it's actually technocratically, I think, a rather better state than the British state because it trains its civil servants to much higher levels of technocratic competence and all of that. You know, lots of the French equivalents of you studying history at Merton College, Oxford, Thomas, will have been uh, at the Grande École studying engineering. And so they will themselves have a view an absolute view on how ticket machines at Waterloo Station should work, which by and large British civil servants and ministers don't because they don't have the technical competence to do it, whereas lots of French ministers do have the technical competence. So yeah. I know, I, I, I'm never one who's thought, you know, from a fairly good experience of what happens internationally, that the grass is greener on other sides. I don't think that inherently we manage our transport systems well, less well or better than other countries some cases we manage them better, some cases we manage them less well. It's, it's much of a muchness, in my view. Where we had a failing for about a generation, as I say, and this was roughly from the 70s through to the, to the noughties, was we were too slow in big infrastructure upgrades of our transport systems. In those three decades, other European countries were doing uh, three things that we failed to do. They were building high-speed rail, which we didn't do. They were building state-of-the-art metro systems that we didn't do. And they were um, uh, often expanding their hub airports very significantly, uh, which we only half did. You know, we had a fifth terminal at Heathrow. We didn't build a third runway, and we didn't uh, uh, replicate, for example, a which has turned... Um, the Netherlands into a, a real rival as as an aviation hub. Um, we did bits and pieces. We built the Channel Tunnel. We we built um, high speed one. We did build a f- fifth um, uh, terminal, a fourth terminal, and then a fifth terminal in in, in Heathrow. But we didn't go about systematic modernization in, some, in the way that some of our our um, our our European uh, our European counterparts have done. Um, and that's the big. Thing I sought to change. I sought essentially to uh, carry through the big infrastructure and modernizations that simply hadn't been done for the previous generation and that needed to be done. But I'm not in the business of running down the country and saying that we inherently do things worse than other countries. We manage our transport systems one hell of a lot better than the Americans. My God, have you been through an American public airport? Sadly, yes. Uh, Have you you looked at the state of America's road infrastructure, you know, and and it's not just America, either. I I have a house in Italy and go there a lot. And I had to change the whole route that I take to get from the airport to my house because a bridge collapsed, literally collapsed, because the concrete that was used to build it in the 60s was almost certainly built by corrupt contractors and diluted, which is the reason why Italy has had to close and do um, stress tests and replace about half of the bridges on their motorway system. So this idea that somehow things are all done better elsewhere and that Britain isn't great isn't true. We do some things well, some things less well, and I've seen the job of serious public policy specialists like me, which I suppose is what I am, is to engage in what I call R&D, not being research and development, but being rob and duplicate, robbing and duplicating the ideas and the systems which other people who have done things well have been doing for the last generation, and we we haven't been doing enough. HS2, being a classic case in point, HS2 is literally robbing and duplicating the Japanese Shinkansen, literally. Taking what is a system that is a state of the art into conurbation, high-capacity, high-speed rail system, which the Japanese opened between Tokyo, Osaka, uh, uh, Tokyo, Nagoya, and Osaka in 1964, and replicating it to run between London, Birmingham, Manchester, and Leeds. Now, at one level, it's extremely difficult to do because the the uh, planning and the politics and all of that that need to be done are extremely complicated, and they, you know, I mean, uh, they literally. Uh, uh, over, you know, They were my massive preoccupation when I was Transport Secretary. But at the level of ideas, they were very simple. They were s- spotting that this was something that the Japanese had done, which was transformational in terms of their main interurban corridor, their equivalent of our Greater London, the West Midlands and Greater Manchester, and seeking to apply that in our context. There couldn't be a simpler thing at the level of ideas, and there couldn't be something more difficult to accomplish. At the level of implementation and that is I see the art of the kind of intersection of policy and politics which I've basically made my career.
1: One of the interesting things is that within Transport we spend a vast amount of time debating what should be privatised, what should be nationalised, what should be the hybrid, what form the hybrid Mm -hmm. should take and we've spoken on this podcast of the French and the Japanese, the French, highly mm. centralised and technocratic. Mm. The Japanese have a private rail system, for example. Mm. Um, do you think that actually we spend too much time worrying about the details of who runs it and how they run it? As again, some of the yardsticks you've been talking about today, mm. which is you know, these high level outputs. Are mm. they in place and are they being delivered? Uh,
0: yes, is the answer. I think we spend far... People love sh- shaking up the um... system and believe you know it's the hawthorne effect that people believe that if you 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 know the the, the hawthorne experiment suddenly when you turn up the lights in a factory somebody you know some management guru found the 1950s productivity rate was raised and everybody thought what you should have is more lights on factory floors and then what they realized was when everybody had adjusted to the higher lights nothing changed so they then started dimming the lights because somehow that would then be less stressful for people working there's this great belief which comes out of management theory and a bit of ideology you know because the left tend to like more state and the right tends to like less state that if you change the whole way things are managed that you'll make a fundamental difference my own view is that you can run good transport systems in the public sector you can run them in the private sector there are very good arguments for one or the other Providing you're pragmatic about having well-run systems, you can have well-run systems in the public sector, well-run systems in the private sector. I didn't regard my role as, as, a, as a kind of political operative as bringing about fundamental change by changing the sector. I made, a, except for when literally I had a private operator on the East Coast main line that literally went AWOL, literally walked away. So I had to take charge of it. My view was what you should do is to make the status quo work as well as possible. And I, was not, I did not want to be the minister who was remembered for taking the West Coast mainline out of the public sector and into the private sector and regarding that as a great trial. Because I didn't think that in 30 years' time anybody was going to much mind whether efficient trains were run by a body which was publicly operated or bo- a body that was privately owned. However, they will remember whether there is a new railway line between London, Birmingham and Manchester to replace one that is seriously congested. And so all of the marginal utility which I had as a minister and somebody able to uh, make the waves in Whitehall, I directed at these big fundamental issues of infrastructure modernization, not the... the uh, as you say, the minutiae, and the details of how the systems are actually being operated.
1: So if we don't need a different structure for running the industry, do we need different ministers? I mean, one thing I'm I'm struck by is the comment earlier that most ministers don't focus on long-term transformational change. And I'm also struck by the fact that you're a relatively unusual Secretary of State in having not sat in the House of Commons and having been appointed to the House of Lords in order to be able to take on ministerial office. And many other countries globally do not require their ministers to come out of out of the main house of parliament, and you have a much wider body of people that could be appointed. Have we just got this wrong in the way that we choose who who runs our great offices of state?
0: I think I think we need more people who are aren't engaged as ministers in the day to day business of political management. I, I, I definitely think so. Um, uh, you know, our governments, which are quite large in ministerial terms, they've about one hundred and twenty ministers. In, in in most governments, there were only a handful who I would say were transformational change agents. And I think we need more of those. Uh, and one way of doing them would be to have more senior ministers in the House of Lords. Yes. So that is my view. Um, I'm, I'm the last secretary of state to have sat in the House of Lords. That tells its own story, really
1: despite a huge number of new peers being appointed in that time. But mostly,
0: the ministers in the House of Lords are very junior, because almost all of the senior ministers, for political reasons, are put in the House of Commons. Whereas I think um, that having a few ministers in the House of Lords, including cabinet ministers, in in where it makes sense, then, um, uh, then that can get a better balance between long-term planning and short-term management. That's not to say that... Short-term political management doesn't matter. You know, my number two when I was Transport Secretary was Sadiq Khan. Now, Sadiq, was a very good friend of mine, there is nobody better at political management than Sadiq, is absolutely in the thick of it. And it was very, very important to me as I, spending, as I said, about half my time seeking to do really big um, transformational infrastructure planning, it was very important to me that my number two in the House of Commons, who was literally day-by-day day doing the in the thick of it type of stuff, though, let me immediately say that Sadiq is a very nice guy. So he's not like Malcolm Tucker in his personality. But in terms of his ability, you know, literally to twist arms, do all the stuff on the floor of the House of Commons, you know, know what's going on in, in uh, Joe Bloggins' constituency in Leeds East and all of that, um, Sadiq was absolutely on top of it. Uh, but I do think that there is a role for more for more ministers who are doing serious long-term planning and and delivery than we have in our system. And I think part of the reason why, in in some areas, our systems haven't been modernized enough is that we don't have enough of them. Now, again, that's not to say that the grass is always greener elsewhere. Um, Other countries I know, um, uh, bureaucracies run the system. and minister, in Japan, um, it's very, very unusual for ministers to have ideas of long-term planning and reform. you know The Shinkansen, which I looked at how that was developed, was because of a very, very brilliant bureaucratic director of the transport department who persuaded his minister that this was something that should be done. And the reason why the minister, it's very interesting, this is because always policy and politics come together. The reason why the Japanese transport minister and prime minister in the early 1960s were persuaded to go for this revolutionary idea of high-speed rail was because it was going to be a big, big, new, shiny thing that could be opened for the Tokyo Olympics in 1964 and could get massive numbers of people in and out. And that was the imperative that led them to go with the idea and to put huge amounts of investment behind it in a five-year period. And it was this mixture, a very happy and unusual mix of a very brilliant transport planner who was effectively a bureaucrat, but a very unusual bureaucrat who thought big ideas, and a very conventional type of minister who was, to be blunt, worried about the next election, which is what brought it. So there isn't a perfect model. What you need in any system of government, from a combination of your civil servants, your political operatives, your ministers, Uh, what you need is a mix of people who are are good at politics, good at short-term management, good at keeping the show on the road, and good at long-term ideas and modernisation. Now, how you get that combination will vary between different countries and different systems and often different mixes of people. And uh, uh, there's no one model that is you could say, look, that's the one that you should be copying. You know, in in America at the moment, I'm a great fan of Pete Buttigieg. Who has a really, really young, dynamic, clear thinker. He was also at the University of Oxford. He came as a road scholar. I think he has massive capacity. He has just been appointed as secretary of transportation, which normally in the American system, like in our system, is a very low grade job, even though he was, he ran a very, very good presidential campaign against Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination. And I think is a potential president. Why has he gone to transportation? Because Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg want to carry through really big transport infrastructure modernizations, and they want to push the profile of that department sky high. And uh, so, you, you know, when you look at what happens in other countries, sometimes you can see things that resemble what's 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 happened here as well as differ from it.
1: Yeah, it was Pete Buttigieg, actually, who partly inspired my question because I thought exactly that. And I thought you know,
0: he's... That's he's- why he's gone to transportation. He has not gone to transportation... In order to be uh, somebody who has views on, you know, what's going to happen to um, the Amtrak service between um, Washington and New York, what the, he, he has gone there for with a big brief and and hopefully a big budget, if Biden can get it through Congress. And actually, I think Pete Buttigieg, because quite, could be quite an important agent in persuading Congress to go for it, is a trillion-dollar, you know, ten-year big infrastructure transformation scheme. And he'll be, then
1: be the person who kickstarts it. We're nearly out of time, but one one final question. Looking forward in this country, um, we're obviously at the comparatively at the start of a new parliament. Um, there's another nearly four years before we're expected to have a, another election. What do you see happening in the world of transport uh, and the world of politics? You mentioned that it's it's where those things coincide that decisions get made.
0: Well, certainly for the next. Um, period ahead. It's hard to define how long it's going to be. Managing and dealing with the aftermath of COVID-19 is going to be horrendous. And there are big questions in there which we still don't know. Will commuting patterns return to pre-COVID-19? We don't know. If they they're clearly going to substantially return. So I don't think human nature has suddenly changed and the location of businesses and all of that. But as you and I know from having been in the thick of it, if you only get 90% as much commuting as you had before COVID-19, then many of our systems are unsustainable. Literally, Transport for London, um, uh, uh Uh, National Express go out of business if there was only 80 to 90 percent of the traffic that there was before so so dealing with the management of COVID-19 and the aftermath is going to be to be blunt probably nightmarish it's absolutely nightmarish at the moment because literally you've got 10 20 percent you know National Express announced running no coaches at all until until we're out of the COVID-19 lockdown. So that's a huge challenge. But alongside that, you've also got the modernisation challenge. So at the moment, literally, as we speak, there are 250 building sites for HS2 between London, Birmingham and Crewe. So you've literally got at the moment, which I like to think is a bit of the legacy of how I did the job, a massive bit job of of management in the short term but there are big infrastructure modernizations that are being carried through in the medium term and there may be one or two new ones now a big issue for us in terms of the management of our road systems are we going to go down the road down as as we start introducing more green and uh, electric vehicles and so on and getting the infrastructure in place for that is a big thing are we going to move towards some form of road pricing as well which will also be a, a massive infrastructure and policy change and modernisation. So you've got these two things running in parallel now, in real time. The management of a system that's in crisis alongside big modernisation, some of which are in the process of being delivered, like HS2, others like the next generation of road transportation and, as I say, potentially road pricing, which are just a gleam in the eye at the moment. And a good transport, Secretary, will be good at doing both of those. A bad transport secretary will fuck them both up.
1: I I said it was our last question, and I will let you go in one minute. But actually, you've just raised something I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is road pricing. I've written an article on the Freewheeling blog about it recently. And I'd love to know your view, because looking at at, at research, the perception Mm. that people are deeply opposed, actually, opinion poll data doesn't really support that. Mm. There's not this huge majority hostility to road pricing. Any economic analysis supports it. It makes it makes sense. We don't treat any other resource in the way that we treat roads race, the whereby we ration it through crowding and congestion. Why has road pricing been so hard to get even the smallest hint of political momentum behind in the past? And do you think it'll change? Well, uh,
0: it, it's, it's been hard to have a national system of road pricing, but the congestion charge in London was the big, big first um, step on the way to road pricing. Because for the first time, people were having to pay. And large numbers of people. You know, this is the largest city in the country, and this is the main uh, business and and central district. We're having to pay to enter it each day. So my view is that road pricing is an idea whose time has come. Uh, The combination of electric cars, the green agenda, decarbonisation, and congestion, I think, is... Uh, is now making it imperative. And the difference between happening and not happening isn't, I don't think, public acceptability, it's political leadership. And provide because after all, the only reason we got um, uh, the congestion zone in London was because of political leadership, Ken Livingstone. It wouldn't have happened otherwise. So the question is, is there now a political leader being a prime minister and a transport minister who's actually prepared to go for it and sell it, including the advantages of it, which is less congestion, less pollution, more money that can then be devoted to other things in return for the pain, which is that motorists are going to have to start paying in real time for their travel. And I can't, I don't know whether Boris plus Grant Chaps will bite the bullet. I'm not sure. They might do. If they don't, as I say, it's an idea his time has come. It's just a matter of time before somebody does. There is a big difference, though, between it happening now and happening in 20 or 30 years' time. And I think because I'm a believer in modernization, modernising ahead of the pack, not behind it, because that's what gives countries a competitive advantage. It's what Adam Smith called the wealth of nations, is being ahead of change, not behind it. So if it's an idea his time has come, it would be a great idea for us, UK PLC, to do it in the 2020s, and not the 2040s fingers crossed let's hope it happens great to be with you thomas and uh send me the link for this when you put it up
1: will do definitely thank you so much all the very very best with your uh your own enterprises as you take them forward that concludes the freewheeling podcast today i hope you enjoyed my chat with andrew adonis thank you very much to him for joining us and thank you to you for joining us Next week, I'm joined by Dr. Benedict Morrison, lecturer in film and literature from the University of Exeter, for a discussion on transport in films. If you get a chance, please do rate and review the Freewheeling podcast. We are new, and I'd love to get your feedback on what you'd like to be different and what you'd like to see. I can be found at thomas at thomasableman.com or via the various social channels at the handle ThomasAbleman. Until next week, see you soon. Thanks.